I almost didn't teach this text. I love Romans 5, which is where we're gonna go in a minute, but I almost didn't teach this text. Um, I knew last November when a lot of our pastoral team was sitting down and figuring out who had the privilege to fill in whenever Pastor Mike was gonna be gone throughout the year, um, I knew I'd, I'd have this text. And so, um, actually, I picked it in November. And then um, something happened on January 28th that made me rethink this whole thing. You see, I loaded up with 60 high school students and then a bunch of youth leaders. We were heading to Universal Studios in Orlando for a Rock the Universe night. Who's been to Rock the Universe before? It's a fantastic event. You get to go and ride the rides after hours, and they've got a bunch of Christian concerts all over the park. It's a really good time. And so we're literally in our foyer getting ready to hop on the bus. The seniors are like, let us on first. And I'm like, okay. So we're getting that organized. And I get a text on my phone. And it's a screenshot of a medical portal. And my mom, who had had a cough, um, I start reading through this screenshot. And it says that she has stage four lung cancer. And um, my mom's a believer. She's 56 years old non-smoker her whole life. She's a believer who's impacted many, many lives. Her and my dad are missionaries, and so they go to local places in the DR and Haiti and Jamaica and Cuba and all over, encouraging local pastors to do their thing and get money from churches in the U.S. to, to support them. Super cool mission, and now she has this, and it rocked my world. And so I told my team, I said, hey, um, Stephanie and Darius, would you guys take over once we get into the park? I need some time of my own. And so I remember walking through the park, trying to avoid people, and tears streaming down my face, um, thinking, God, what are you up to? And I walked over, and uh, I heard a, a worship band singing, and the speaker pauses in this moment, and he's like, God, bring on the storms. Bring on the storm, because I want to have my faith show all the stronger. And I thought, you don't know what you're saying, you fool. I respect you, but man, bring on the storms. And then here I am weeping, knowing, I mean, don't look at the statistics, right? But what do you do? And so I'm sitting here thinking, I don't know how much longer I have with my mom. And my heart's broken, and I'm thinking, God, what are you up to in this? And for me, I get very philosophical and try to analyze through pain. And so I'm processing and wrestling. Uh, mom's had two bouts of chemo, and she's in a lot of pain. Uh, I got to go visit her um, a couple weeks ago, and so I was up there visiting, and I had the craziest trip of my life, and I'm not kidding. Starting from the plane, taking off to go to Michigan, we're, we're over Grand Rapids, and then the landing gear won't work for some reason. And so we're like, are you kidding me? So we circle in the air for 20 minutes. Finally, though, um, thankfully, we're able to land in the tundra of Michigan. We figure it out. We land, meet my parents, and then we start driving home. And my dad's like, hey, I had a weird thing happen yesterday. I got bit by a tick in Michigan in February, and we're like, how did this happen? Well, he told me that a friend of his gave him a jacket uh, from Florida, not me, another Florida man, sent him the jacket. He puts it on, and the tick is like there for just a day, so it's not a huge deal, the doctor says, but I have to drop him off at the urgent clinic, and then drive my mom home, and then come back and get him. It's a mess. Spent some beautiful moments with my mom and family. Very, very cool time. And then I'm getting ready to leave, and I get back on the plane to go back down to Florida. I'm on the plane for two hours because I forgot to fuel, and so we're on the tarmac getting fuel, and then all of a sudden they're like, oh no, the freezing rain's coming, and so the freezing rain comes, and they start de-icing the plane, and then some bozo shoots uh, the de-icer into the engine of the plane, kills it, and now we're there stuck for two hours because I can't bring the plane back to the 
airport. And so there are babies screaming, and moms are like shedding their clothes because it's super hot, there's no AC, the engine's killed, power's out, and I'm thinking, God, what are you doing? <laughs> they finally push us back into the airport, I walk in, and I get an Uber to a mall, I wait for my sister who lives in Grand Rapids to come pick me up, I get brought home, and I'm hanging out with my sister and brother-in-law, and all of a sudden, my dad calls and says, hey, I'm heading to the emergency room, um, I can't feel my limbs. And I'm like, you've gotta be kidding me. Turns out that night at 11, 11.30, me and one sister with my dad in the ER, my mom is with my other sister back home, he's having a mini stroke because of stress and anxiety and you know, already symptomatic towards that. And it's just like one thing after another, God, what are you up to in this? And, and I, I'm just trying to be honest with you because I think that suffering is a, is a topic that we all have in common and it's a human experience. But maybe you're like me and you can get a little bit discouraged or a little fiery when you see suffering and evil in this world. Maybe you're here and you're like, man, when I see the tsunamis and starvation and brokenness and evil and abuse, I can get disheartened and say, God, where are you? Or I can get really bitter and cold and I stop trusting in God. And neither of those is what the Christian experience is all about. So what do we do with evil? And so what I wanna do tonight very quickly is to dip our toes into the academic answers for the problem of evil, the emotional response, but then really dig in on the true question, which is how do we suffer well as Christians? How do we suffer well in the name, it got really quiet there. <laughs> Y'all are like, amen, yeah, let's talk about it. And then it's, ooh, how do we suffer well? We're gonna talk about it, so we're gonna look in. And so before we jump to Romans 5, really quick, um, Maybe, maybe you're like me and you turn into a philosopher like Wesley from The Princess Bride who says this, life is pain, highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. <laughs> maybe it's true. Or maybe there are good answers for our struggles. And so before we jump into Romans 5, let's start with some quick academic answers. First, where does evil come from? There are four primary sources. First of all, humans. We cause a lot of evil to each other, don't we? Humans are bad from birth. I love this R.C. Sproul quote, quoting John Kelvin. He talks about evil. He says this, John Kelvin wrote, and it was an unguarded statement to be sure, but he wrote that babies are as depraved as rats. I just wish he never wrote that. It's one of the few places I disagree because it's such a gross insult to those rats. <laughs> those poor rats are just chasing cheese, running away from cats, doing the best they can, but that baby is a blasphemer. And it's true. And it's not an insult to humans, we're born into sin because of our father Adam, right? Nothing that we could help, we were born this way under sin, but we are responsible now that we know it. My daughter Nora is turning eight months old tomorrow, which is exciting, and um, she recently was laying on her back next to a friend, you know, friend when you're seven months old, what do you guys do? So anyway, she leans over and pulls a pacifier out of this kid's mouth and sticks it in her own mouth. <laughs> She's a dirty, rotten sinner. And don't worry, I got her permission to share the story, so we're super kosher. But no, from, from birth, human beings cause each other evil, but then I would say, number two, there's demonic evil in the world, spiritual warfare. We are living amidst, uh, excuse me, amidst an unseen realm where there is uh, spiritual beings that are at war against good, and that's just very real. We are supernaturalists as Christians, and so there is evil in the world. They cause a great deal of harm in a unseen realm. Number three, there's natural evil, tsunamis, sickness, starvation. Because of the fall, we know that there is a dramatic brokenness to God's good world. And because of that, there's a lot of outworking of just natural evil in the world. Number four, God manipulates evil for good. He works the night shift. 
to correct the brokenness in the world. Think Pharaoh and Joseph when you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, right? And so those are some of the causes we see of it. But some of the questions I hear a lot is why doesn't God just get rid of evil right now? Why doesn't he just do away with it right now? Wouldn't that be great? Well, a couple of problems with that. Who would be still around if God got rid of evil? I wouldn't pass that test. And you're like, no, no, no. I just mean like a certain kind of evil. Well, where is the scale? Because Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that adultery is not too far from lust and, and murder is not too far from anger. The problem is we want a God who is really, really, really against evil, but really, really merciful to me. And you see the hypocrisy there? We, we can't get both ways, right? Or can you on the cross of Jesus, amen? But, but we want a God who is against evil on our terms. Second Peter 3 says that God is patient, not wanting any to perish. I'm excited for the rapture just like y'all, but aren't you thankful God did not come back before you got saved? Or before Paul penned half the New Testament? You can go on and on. God's mercy is, is driving his patience. Do you have the same attitude that he has? I wish Christians spent more time evangelizing as they get excited for the rapture than just hiding and being afraid of the world, amen? We need to be breaching the gates of hell to reach people, to pull them out. What if you're the last person to win a soul to Christ before the rapture happened? God's like, that's the last one I was waiting on. That'd be amazing. That's my life goal, by the way. <laughs> Maybe one reason that we ask God why we're suffering is because we have a disillusioned view of what the Bible promises. We think that God doesn't want suffering in our life or allow suffering in our life. We quote Jeremiah 29, 11, which goes towards Israel, but maybe could apply to the church because we're still God's people. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you a future and a hope. The problem is, of course, that context, right? The Babylonian invasion was coming and they were gonna be trapped for 70 years and God says, in the midst of the pain, I know the plans I have for you. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Some football star has it under his eye tonight somewhere. And the problem is, in context, Paul says, I've been made low, I can abound, I can have little or much, I can handle any circumstance, I can do all things. The truth is the Bible's very honest about suffering. I think a lot of people would be very excited about Jesus if they just heard the honest appraisal of brokenness in the world. But instead, we're like, man, Everything's gonna be peachy and easy sailing when you get saved, and it's just not true. There is suffering in the world. Now, those are helpful to discuss, as well as C.S. Lewis's moral argument. How many of you are familiar with moral argument, C.S. Lewis? People are like, God can't exist because evil exists. Well, if evil exists, then good exists. And if evil and good exist, then the moral law exists to differentiate the two. And if the moral law exists, there has to be a moral law giver. But that's who you're trying to disprove and not prove. The no moral law giver, there's no moral law, no moral law, no good and evil, no good, no evil. What was your question, right? And so even the fact that evil exists, it, it, it disturbs us because it shows that God gave us something that shows that he is here and real. And so those are helpful discussions, but did that solve the problem by a long shot? No, they're, they're academic answers. I find the emotional responses much more helpful. And so I love John chapter 11. Jesus is there, Martha runs to him, tears in her eyes, and she says to this, to Jesus, if you had just been here, my brother would not have died. A lot of faith in that statement, but a lot of disappointment too. If you had just been here, my, my brother would not have died. Three points really quick. Number one, Jesus can handle our honest responses. Look at the Psalms. 
Jesus can handle our honest questions and pain and brokenness. Where were you? But then I would say number two, Jesus begins to weep over the pain of people around him. God in Jesus suffers with us in our pain. He is heartbroken. He knows full well that he's gonna heal Lazarus in just a few verses. But he weeps with people in their pain. And number three, it says that Jesus became indignant as he moved towards the tomb. There's an anger in him as he's watched his good creation ravaged by the flesh, by the devil, and by sin. And he is angry at evil, and that is good. And to me, I can trust in a God who is angry at evil, who weeps with me in my pain, and who can handle my honesty. There's a fourth one we have to get to in Romans 5. Please say we jump into Romans 5. Let's do it. How ought we to live in the midst of this broken world? We know that God exists. We know that he's at war against evil and that Christ hurts with us in our pain. But how are we called to live in the midst of pain? How can we suffer well? What hope is there in this fallen world? The answer, there is boatloads of hope. Romans 5 I'm gonna read through one verses 11 and then we can take it apart verse by verse. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. It's a good passage, isn't it? I cannot wait to dig in with you guys. We got 23 minutes left, are you ready? Sweet. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, a couple thoughts. First of all, we didn't have peace. This is peace that was missing because the Bible describes us as enemies of God. We didn't have peace. We didn't have a reconciled relationship. We weren't close to God because of our sin. But also, this idea of peace in the Hebraic mindset is gonna say this is the shalom and rhythm that we're called to walk in with God. And so he says, because we've been justified, declared right with God, we are righteous before God, we have, present tense, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. 
and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You see, another perk of justification is that we can stand in grace. The original language is so cool here. It's we have stood and we will continue to stand in the realm of grace. We are not indebted to the realm of law or or legalism or animal sacrifice or Levitical code. We are in the realm of grace because we have been justified. And we can stand with strength in that position. And then he says this remarkable sentence, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. This word rejoice, it can be translated as boast or brag. We, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. We have a future glorious state. It's better than we can imagine, and it's gonna be ruling the new heavens and earth under God, with God, on the new heavens and new earth. It's gonna be incredible, y'all. It's gonna be great. There's something inside of us that we know is fractured because of the way we watch movies and you feel inspired or you read books or you read poetry. It is something to your hearts because you are not home yet. And there's something I think in all of us that craves the new heavens and the new earth. We lost something at the fall and something that our heart yearns for. It is future glory. And so our future is good and we, we rejoice in that hope. But then I imagine Paul writing this out looking down at his scarred hands and beaten body and thinking, but what about the present, right? Because the future sounds mighty good, but what about our present sufferings? He goes on and says this, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Notice he doesn't say we rejoice despite our sufferings, We rejoice in the midst of our sufferings. No, he says we rejoice in our sufferings. Do you see why I almost didn't teach this passage? This could be for you suffering a canceled flight, or it could be a random tick bite, or it could be a dark prognosis. This could be suffering from spiritual abuse in your past, Suffering you caused yourself because of your stupidity could be infertility, a broken home, a check engine light, a hangnail. Those are real. A bad boss, depression, being betrayed by a friend, a life-draining spouse, being judged wrongly, the loss of a pet or another early funeral. There is suffering all around us. And by the way, you might be like, yeah, I'll rejoice in my sufferings if they're like Jesus-y sufferings, you know, suffering for evangelism or being criticized or whatever. I think we rejoice in all sufferings. This is what Douglas Moo, the commentator on Romans says. Indeed, in a certain sense, all sufferings are on behalf of Christ. This is so because all the evil that the Christian experiences reflects the conflict between this age, dominated by Satan, and the age to come, to which the Christian has been transferred by faith. All suffering betrays the presence of the enemy and involves attacks on our relationship to Christ, if met in God's goodness and promise or bitterness towards others or despair or even resignation. These sufferings can bring spiritual defeat to the believer. But if met with the attitude of confidence and rejoicing that Paul encourages here, these sufferings will produce those valuable spiritual qualities that he lists going on. Rejoice in your sufferings. Because knowing that suffering produces 
endurance. The word knowing here is again one of those really beautiful words. We have known it and we continue to know it. We know that something happens, that there is good that's going to come out of this. Suffering produces perseverance. Sufferings are tribulations or afflictions. They produce or accomplish or achieve a certain result, which is enduringness. This is the stick to itness that every athlete knows. I don't get people who like to work out. I like to work out. That way I can feel good afterwards. Helps with anxiety, helps me stay in shape. I eat better, I sleep better. But people who are like, yes, squats, let's hit it. Like during the squat, I'm like, you're a madman. What is wrong with you? I don't enjoy the suffering. But after I push through it, I start to become a person of a perseverance. I was a wrestler in high school. Wrestling is the best sport ever. Here's why, there's no excuses, number one. It's you and the guy on the mat. No coach, he's on the side, no other teammates that can mess up. It's you, everything on the mat. I also love it because it's like a 4D chess game, right? And it involves strength and heart and skill and passion, just what everything you lay out on the mat. Well, when I was a sophomore, I believe, I was wrestling this kid and it was called the blood round. And so whoever lost this match went home, their season was done, very end of the season. And I'm long and lanky, so I was a cradler, which is when you grab the behind the knee and the head and you hold it back, and you just kind of hold on to that like a little baby, right? And then the goal is to put them on their back and pin them. Well, this guy obviously was not gonna get pinned. And so the third period, two minutes, the longest two minutes of my life, aside from when I asked Katie to marry me, but um, two minutes, I gotta go get this guy. I'm ahead in points. I put him in a cradle, put him on his back, and he's not gonna get pinned, right? So he's kicking with all of his might, and I can feel the blood draining, and I can feel my arms going, and I'm fighting tooth and nail for two minutes. If I just hold the cradle, then I win and go on to regionals. And I'm trying to endure, it is not pleasant. But at the very end of the time, the ref blows a whistle, and my coach is like, yeah, you got it. Now go sign your name. And I'm like, cool. And I like walk over and I have to like literally like, because my arm, I literally couldn't lift. I'm not making this up. It was so tired, but I had endured. I had become a person of perseverance. Some of y'all need to endure a little bit of suffering well, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Are you a person of endurance I know that learning a new language can be really, really, really hard because no one likes to sit there and be confused, right? You're like, how do I conjugate this verb? Oh, I feel stupid. And you get frustrated. Well, the truth is the person that perseveres can have a great benefit of a new language, but it's painful. And I think the same applies to all suffering in our lives. You are changed to your core when you go from being a person who suffers to a person of endurance. And then he continues on in this chain. He says, suffering produces perseverance or endurance, and endurance produces what? Oh, come on, say it one more time. Character. The word can be translated proven character. It's that I did it. I achieved it. I, I walked through it, and now I am changed because of it. Character is something that it changes inside of you where you're no longer the same person anymore. Paul says, when you suffer well, you can endure well. When you endure long enough, you become a person of proven character and that changes you from the inside out. And Paul says, by the way, about this, that that produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 
Hope, by the way, is not optimism, it's not plucky, it's not half glass full, it is a confident expectation of the future. It is a knowledge that this is going to happen. It's not going to give you up, it's not gonna let you down, it's not gonna run around and desert you. By the way, he doesn't say if, does he? He doesn't say if you endure, if you endure, if you endure. Paul would agree with that, but I believe that God is gonna give every Christian who suffers the power to stick through it by his Holy Spirit to not wilt under pressure. You have God in you. He's gonna empower you to suffer well. And by the way, most of your sufferings will be beyond what you can handle apart from him. He's gonna give you things that are challenges to walk through in life, but it's because he's working in you. He's doing a work in you. Are you gonna partner with him in this or are you gonna fight him all the way? From the first suffering to the final hope, this process is like a divine boot camp that God uses to do something. First of all, it proves that we're saved. I've heard of, of marriages where the, the husband used to be really whiny when everything bad happened. And then after a while, he pursued God and he was patient and he developed character and proven character. And after a while, the wife, she said to him, you are, you're saved. I can see a difference in your character and that produces hope. And by the way, hope does not disappoint because God's love has been poured. What, what's the proof that, we are, that our hope is meaningful, that it's not just an optimism or silliness, it's that we experience the subjective, intimate presence of God in the midst of our sufferings. I'll give you an example. Many of you know that my wife and I walk through infertility and there's still challenges there, um, but we had a miscarriage, second miscarriage, and I remember walking into our garage and I was just feeling really beat up and sad. And I, I got tears streaming down my face and just, God, I'm upset, I'm hurting. And I just stopped in the, the hallway. And I gotta say, I experienced something so mystical and beautiful that I feel crazy talking about it. But I felt the presence of God in that moment. And I'm not making it up. I felt something and I felt God's presence and it's awesome to know God had his arms around me to say, I've got you. We're gonna get through this. It was the presence of God through the Holy Spirit. He says this, God's love has been poured out in our hearts. When is it poured out? It's poured out on the death of Jesus when blood was poured from his side. It was poured out at your salvation when God chose you and saved you. But it was also poured out every single day when we experience the love of God in our life. This is a perfect verb and it happens in the past but it continues to happen repeatedly when we sit in that presence and look for it. The Holy Spirit has been given to us. Then he continues on here and says this. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Somebody scarcely dies for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. So verse six uh, on is gonna describe humans as weak, ungodly sinners and enemies of God. This is not an insult. We are spiritually weak apart from God. We are enemies of God. We are sinners. We are broken. But this is the moment that Christ died for us. See, the pinnacle of human suffering, excuse me, of human love is watching somebody lay down their life for their friends, right? We, we have in all of our movies, Saving Private Ryan, at the very end, he's got men dying for him for an honorable cause. Earn this. It's honorable. When we hear about a mother giving up her life for her child, we sit in stunned silence to think what love 
for her child. Worthy causes make sense to us. When, when, a, when a soldier jumps onto a loose grenade to save his comrades, we look at that and say, that is honorable. And that makes sense. That's what Paul's saying. But then verse eight becomes the biggest moment of proof of God's love for you. But God showed his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When you were his enemy, Christ died for you. It's the best prove it demonstration showing of his love. The word demonstrate means to prove a characteristic or claim through action. It's through action. And by the way, this helps me trust God in suffering. This moment right here, it helps me understand that he entered the mess alongside us. You see, if God was, was hanging out in a different galaxy and he was good and faithful and loving, but he never got his hands dirty alongside us, I might be a little skeptical as to if he's good or not. Just being honest with you. But when I know that God entered suffering alongside humanity through Jesus, and he was betrayed and beaten and took our place, at that moment I say, that's a God I can trust in. I can trust that you were up to something. Now I know that when I pray and he whispers back, no or not yet, I know that he's up to something. I saw why God allowed my flight to get canceled because then I got to hang out with my dad in the ER and be there for him. It made sense. The problem is, is that we rarely in our lifetime get to see the full extent of what God is up to. We don't get to see the big picture. But this is where we can know that God is up to something in suffering because he went to the lengths of sending Jesus to die on behalf of us. Look at Gary Bashir says, one of my professors at Western Seminary, I can trust a God who will die for me. In light of the life of Emmanuel, I will be tenaciously loyal to the God I do not get. I don't know what you're up to, but I trust you because you demonstrated your love for me in this. When Christ died for us, by the way, it was a substitute and a representative. We are sinful Barabbas. And then Jesus took our place as our representative. So right now my mom is sick. God may heal her, he may not. But I'm absolutely confident that God is up to something in that suffering. My love and trust for God is only growing stronger. I don't get it. I will hurt deeply. I'm not passive, I will pray deeply. I will fight with every ounce of my being against evil and death and sickness. But at the end of the day, I trust that God is good and I don't always have to have all the keys. Some people focus on verse six, this experiential love of God poured out in your hearts. Others focus on verse eight, they can prove God's love. My challenge to you today is this, sit in both. For people here who are very analytical and like to understand, I would encourage you this week to really sit in the love of God and ask him to prove his love for you, subjectively, mysteriously, beautifully. Put some worship music on, confess sin to a friend, have a moment with the Lord where you experience his gracious love. And then some of you here, you guys don't really care, you're just like here for the moment, you're loving it, you feel the jive, the music, you're experiential people. Take a moment and study verse eight and think God proved his love for me in this. When you do both of those things, by the way, it makes your hope 
strong and unshakable. I want an unshakable hope. Verse nine says this. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. He argues from the greater to the lesser. If we're already justified, then God's anger, God's righteous, good anger against sin, God's gonna take care of that. We have no wrath to fear. And, and if we've been reconciled, by the way, that word just means we've been made a friend of God. He's brought us in. This is judicial justification, and it's relational reconciliation. We are no longer enemies, we are friends. We are no longer guilty, we are, we're freed. And he says, because of this, we can be confident in our future. We know that when God rightly comes back to destroy evil and set the world to rights, that God is not gonna come after us because we have Jesus. We have Jesus. Verse 11 says this, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We rejoice in God through Jesus. The beginning of this chapter, he says we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, future. Then he says more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings right now because God's doing something in us and around us. And I wanna be a willing partner in what he's doing. But then number three, he says we rejoice in God through Jesus. You see, new Christians, they love to focus on the benefits of God. They're like, man, I've been forgiven, oh yeah. I've been adopted, booyah. They're like, I have an inheritance, all right. They're like, I get to suffer and grow in it, okay. And then, and then as they mature, as months and days and years go by, they stop saying, I'm so excited for these things. I get Jesus. I rejoice in God himself. Heaven, new earth, sounds great. I'm excited because Jesus is gonna be there. That's our inheritance. That's what happens as we grow, rejoicing in God through Jesus. Maybe you're here today and you've forgotten hope. It's a very real possibility. You had a bad prognosis, there's a death in your family, you lost the house, whatever, and it knocked the wind out of you. You thought God loved me. You're like Martha and you say, if you had just been here, my brother would be alive. God's inviting you tonight to trust him again. To fill that spot that is calloused and cold and afraid to love because you're afraid to risk. I'd invite you to trust God again. You see, you can't love God if you don't trust God. In Christ, God weeps at our pain. He is angry at sin and evil and he demonstrates zero apathy as Christ died for you, promising a set past and a perfect, hopeful future. Will you trust him? For those of you that are in that camp tonight, I'd encourage you to come to the front after we're done and share your story with a ministry partner. And you're like, I'm not that kind of guy. I really don't care. <laughs> come up and try it. Say, I'm really struggling tonight. I've been mad at God for X amount of years. I'm telling you, you look around, 
Isn't it crazy when, when stuff happens to you and you forget that everyone else is going through something? I leave the hospital and there's nurses chatting up and like they have no idea what I'm going through. But then I think I have no idea what they're going through. Everyone, I imagine if we sat and chatted about all the pain in this room, we'd be devastated. There's a lot of pain and brokenness in this room, isn't there? And a lot of us are walking through stuff. I'd encourage you to be real tonight with somebody up front. Or maybe, maybe you drive to a parking lot and you just have it out with God and say, I want to want to trust you again. I wanna give you a chance. I'm hurting and I'm frustrated. I don't know why you're doing this, but I trust you and I submit. God is inviting you tonight to come back to a childlike faith. Not stupid or foolish, but childlike. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Maybe you're here and you're in the middle of excruciating suffering right now. You need to submit to the process that God is working in you. My encouragement to you would be to stop fighting and thrashing and submit to the process. Suffer well, rejoice in your sufferings, boast of what God is doing in your heart, endure, become a person of character, that will lead to hope. Let suffering make you into a person of character. Some of you tonight have your fists clenched and you're squeezing and you need to say, God, I surrender tonight to you and open that up. Allow God to intervene. Maybe number three, you're here and you're an enemy of God. You've not been justified. You're still in that camp that's not gonna await that future glory. Now, you're here and you're probably on board. I want God to destroy the Hitlers of the world and I want God to show me mercy. Well, good news, the justice and mercy of God met on the cross of Christ. Jesus was your substitute experiencing God's anger towards sin so that way Jesus in turn could show you mercy. My true joy tonight would be to introduce you to Jesus I'd love for you to come down to the front afterwards to find out what it means to come into relationship with that God who is full of righteous justice, who wants to make the world better, but is so patient and merciful in the same moment. Suffer well, church. Let God do his work in you. This will change you from the inside out, amen? Amen.